me to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, Revelation 2 verse 12. How many love the Lord today? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. If you have that, say praise the Lord. We're talking about the church of Pergamos this morning. Revelation 2 12. What an awesome book the book of Revelation is. We have been looking at these churches, one church per week. This is the third uh, church, right? Ephesus. And then we talked about Smyrna and then Pergamos. And I'm telling you, we're taking a whole, whole service per, per church, but we can't touch everything that's in them. Because they're just so powerful. Hallelujah. And we've been looking about sevens, laying sevens on these because there's seven churches. And trying to figure out and understand a deeper understanding of the book of Revelation. Because it is a book of ultimates. Okay, Revelation 2 and verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And that is something this church needed. They needed to know that the Lord has a sharp sword with two edges. The Word of God. The Bible goes on. He says, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Aren't you glad that God knows where we are? Even in difficult situations. Hallelujah. Really never know what's going on behind the scenes. A lot of people don't know what goes on. The battle that goes on. Uh, before even ever service sometimes but God is with us so he goes on he says I know that you dwell where Satan's seat is and thou holdest fast my name hast not denied my faith get it you hold fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr so he was martyred in this time okay who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. In Pergamos. He says who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. To eat things sacrificed unto idols. And to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing I hate. A lot of people don't realize that God hates some things. And one of the things he hates in scripture is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh. Will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And will give him a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Praise God. Father, I thank you for your word today, Jesus. God, speak to us. Stir our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. For we are in great need today to be shaken. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you talk about the church of Pergamos, Pergamos literally means to be married. It's married, but it's, it's married to the wrong thing. It is married to the world. 
It's married to paganism. It's married to false doctrine. It's where the church and state has come together. And the state is supporting the church. But when you've got the state supporting the church, then you've got state law that governs the doctrine of the church. And we'll talk about how this false doctrine crept into the church because the state got involved with the church. Okay? And they basically started running the church instead of God and the fivefold ministry that he set in that house. The state started running the church. Okay? So we have a church here who is married to the world. It's married to paganism. It's married to false doctrine. It has compromised its walk with God. It also means, very interestingly, it means a high tower. High tower, which of course will take you all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 10 and 11. Where we had a high tower they tried to build to reach to heaven. It was a man-made system of religion, economics, and politics under Nimrod. And so this Pergamos literally means high tower. So it links you back to the Babylonian system that's over there in the book of Genesis. Now, the Baal worship or the Babylonian system in the book of Genesis is still with us today. And it's in, it was in the church in Pergamos at this time in the first century. And it's still with us today. Okay? There's a mixture that has taken place. All right. Let's look at some scripture here then. He tells us about the church in Pergamos. He says... To the church of Pergamos, write these things. I have a sharp sword with two edges. And that is important because this church has compromised the word of the Lord. So God comes in here and he says, I have a sharp sword with two edges. Now the Bible talks about the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. And so what he's telling this church ultimately or basically is to get back to the word. Get back to the word of God. The Word of God, if you'll get back to the Word of God, will correct the problems that are in your midst. But you've got to get back to the Word and stop trying to compromise with the world. Stop trying to hold on to both worlds. You cannot hold on to both worlds. I'm, listen, church. There is a struggle in the Spirit. The passing, fading world is after you. It wants you. It wants to govern you. It wants to control you. It wants to dominate you. It wants it to be the focus of your life. And the church, God in the church, second or third or fourth, somewhere down the line. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a great struggle, especially in this hour, for the allegiance of men and the allegiance of women. The world wants you. You've got to understand that. And this church of Pergamos just threw in the towel and surrendered and began to compromise with the world so they could be accepted by the world. You cannot try to hold on to both worlds. If you do, you will lose both of them. You hear what I said? If you try to hold on to both worlds, you're going to lose both of them. You're not just going to lose the kingdom of God by holding on to the world out there. But you're going to lose that world too. See? And he goes in and he starts talking about Balaam. Balaam tried to hold on to two worlds. And he lost both of them. Tried to hold on to the world of the kingdom of God. He tried to hold on to the world, you know, where he'd get favor 
and blessing from earthly kings. Balak was an evil king who hired Balaam to curse the people of God. You see? But Balaam wanted to be a true prophet. But at the same time, he wanted what the world was offering him. And as a result of that, trying to hold on to both worlds, he lost both of them. In fact, he cried out at the end of his life. He said, his desire was to die the death of the righteous. But he didn't die the death of a righteous. He was a soothsayer. He was a bell, bell priest. Okay, you with me here at this point? So Pergamos is a church who's compromised and trying to hold on to both worlds. Have the favor and the approval of the world. And, and, and the Lord's coming in here and he said, I'm going to fight against you. If you don't get this, if you don't repent, I'm going to fight against you. Praise the Lord. Now that's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? But let's read a little bit here. He says to this church, he said, I, I know thy works. Okay. Thank God that he's got the sharp sword with two edges because he can take care of the problem. See, he's showing some aspect of himself that can take care of the problem. So if that world is creeping in on you and trying to take over and dominate you, get back to the Word of God. Get refocused. Any church, any church, apostolic, Pentecostal, or otherwise, can begin to walk as the church of Pergamos did and begin to compromise holiness, oneness doctrine, baptism in Jesus' name, all those things compromised with the world to get the favor of the world. I don't care who you are. I'm looking at you today. The world wants to take your walk away. It wants you to bow down and worship it. It wants you to serve it. But I got news for you. We don't live for this world. We live for the world to come. We live for Jesus and for his kingdom. If you're living for this world right now, you got one foot in the world, one foot in the church, you're going to lose both of them. You might as well just jump over here and get in the kingdom of God and live for God with all your heart. And the best thing that you can do to help yourself stay strong in his kingdom is to get active in his church. If we hardly ever see you and you're never involved and you're never actively serving in the church, you're going to have a real hard time saying no to the world because the world's going to offer you all kinds of pleasure and all kinds of sin to take you away from your focus in the kingdom of God. So I'm exhorting you, church. I'm exhorting everybody here. Get involved in the church of the living God. Pray, serve him, be sold out. Don't try to hold on to both of them. Hallelujah. He goes on, he talks here, and he says this. He says, I know your works. He says, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. He said, I know that Satan's throne is right there in the midst of you. That's his seat. That's his place of, of authority. That's where he governs. He's right there in the midst of your city. But you know what? That shouldn't defeat any of us. Even if the devil has set up his throne in the city of Odessa, Texas, we're still called to overcome that. Now, what does it mean, though, historically, for God to say, or Jesus to look at this church and say, I know that you dwell where Satan's seat is. Well, let me explain to you just very briefly about this church of Pergamos, okay? Back in the days of Nimrod, y'all are familiar with Nimrod, right? Way back in Genesis 10 and 11, there was a Babylonian priesthood. Are you with me? They did not worship the one true God of the Bible. 
they started worshiping a tritheistic false concept of God at way back in Nimrod's days. In fact, Nimrod claimed to be God. He had a wife named Semiramis who had a son named Tammuz. And what this was was a counterfeit of the true God, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, and the, the Mary, or the mother of Jesus, who would give birth to Jesus, God come in the flesh. It was a what? A corruption of what God was going to do. So that people started worshiping Nimrod, who is the first Antichrist. They started worshiping Nimrod. They worshiped his son, Tammuz, who they claim was Nimrod come back in the flesh after he died. And then Samaramus was called the queen of heaven. And they worshiped her as the queen of heaven. All right. What happened is right after we go, we move into history in the days of Daniel. Okay. Daniel was taken captive into Babylon. There in Babylon, they had this system of worship from Nimrod. It's a counterfeit. It was in Babylon in that day. Whenever Belshazzar was slain, read Daniel 4 and 5, when he was slain and the Medo-Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, are you here now? When that happened, then the Babylonian priest, cult priest, they moved to Pergamos. Okay? So the Lord looks at this church and he says, I know that you dwell where Satan's seat is because everything that was associated with Nimrod moved to Pergamos after the destruction of Babylon by the Medial Persians. Now around 133 B.C., there was the, the emperor or the, uh, the king, I should say, of Pergamos before he died in 133 B.C. Right before he died, he made Rome the heirs of the Babylonian cult. They transferred their location from Pergamos to the Roman Empire or Rome. All right, you with me here? So that the Babylonian priesthood, which later they call Christian or Roman Catholicism, was nothing more and is nothing more or less than Babylonian religion. Are you with me here? Now that was 133 B.C. The, the king of Pergamos made Rome the heirs of that cult with the Pope being the Pontifus Maximus or the one, the bishop who chooses anybody who is going to be involved in this priesthood. You with me here? He's the one that, that appoints people to be involved in that Babylonian priesthood. Basically what I'm trying to tell you is this Babylonian system is with us today. It's called Roman Catholicism. It was literally transferred in 133 B.C. to them. Now listen. In 45 A.D., one man by the name of Simon Magus, and we, we've already studied him. In Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus was a demon-possessed man who was involved in all kinds of occult activity. When he saw the apostles, by the laying hand in the hands of the apostles, that people got filled with the Holy Ghost, what did he want to do? He wanted to buy that gift. 
that upon whoever he lays his hands upon, that they would also receive the Holy Ghost just like he saw the apostles doing. But remember what Peter said? He said, you're full of bitterness. You're in the gall of bitterness. Peter was prophesying that this man, Simon Magus, was going to bring in idolatry into the church. When he said you're full of the, the, the bitterness, the gall of bitterness, that's a term that speaks of idolatry. And so Peter looked at Simon Magus and said, you're going to bring idolatry into the church. Now, it was already in Rome. Hang in here with me. It was already there. That false cult system was already there in 133 B.C. But in 45 A.D., we need a man to come on the scene that's going to mix the church with that system. Are you with me up to this point? And his name is Simon Magus. So after Simon Magus' encounter with Peter in Acts chapter 8, Simon said, or Peter said, you are full of the gall of bitterness. You are going to bring idolatry in the church. He prophesied of that. And Simon Magus wanted to buy an apostleship. And Peter said, your money perish with thee. That you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. Now, you know the story. We've already taught this to you in the first church. Okay? The decent, but I'm going to reiterate a little bit for you because we're in the same kind of thing here. Now, what happens is this man, Simon Magus, he was a Baal priest. Okay? Who wanted to be a, an apostle in the church. But he was a Babylonian priest. Simon Magus. He literally, his name is connected with a priesthood to Babylonianism. All right, you here now? Are you listening very carefully? He became Simon Patar. And a Patar is a false god in the Bible or in history. It's a false god, Patar. And also a Patar was a priest over a false religious system. So this man, Simon Magus, became known as Simon Patar or Simon Peter. And when the Roman church says that their church is uh, based on Simon Peter's teaching, that he was the founder of the church in Rome, it is not Simon Peter the apostle. He never even went to Rome. It is Simon Patar or Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8 who went to Rome in 45 A.D., and brought mixture into the church of Baal worship and paganism into the church in 45 AD. And he is the Simon Patar or the Simon Peter, the priest of Babylonianism that mixed Christianity with Baal. And that was 45 AD. Are you with me up to this point? Now, when you go back into time in history, there was a man by the name of Balaam in the Old Testament. You with me? Balaam literally means, the name means to conquer the people. Say conquer the people. Balaam. Y'all remember the story of Balaam? How Balak tried to hire Balaam to curse the people of God as they were going through the, through the land on the way to the promised land. Balak hired Balaam, cursed the people of God. And Balaam said, I can't curse what God has blessed. But Balaam was from Mesopotamia, or uh, there was a Patar in Mesopotamia. Okay, Bethel. Uh, Patar in Mesopotamia. He had a college of Babylonian priests in Mesopotamia. 
He was, about, he was the highest person in the land. He was the successor of Nimrod. His name was Balaam. means to conquer the people. That's what the Greeks called Nimrod. The conqueror of the people. Now the word Nicolaitans that you find in this chapter, along with the word Balaam that you find in Revelation 2 associated with Pergamos, Nicolaitans also means to conquer the people. So when you talk about Nimrod, or you talk about Balaam, or you talk about Simon Magus, or you, are you here? Or you talk about the Nicolaitans, you are talking about people who were in the system of Baal worship. But they brought it into the church. And today it's Roman Catholicism. Now if you want proof for that, get you a book by the name of uh, the two uh, Babylons by Alexander Heslop. And he'll explain to you that everything that was associated with that false system of religion called Baal worship is, is seen in the church of Rome today. Okay, you with me here? And the way it had a seat in Pergamos is because it moved from Babylon to Pergamos and then from Pergamos to Rome. And 45 AD, Simon Magus, Simon Peter, who's buried in Vatican Hill, mixed it. Well, what about Constantine? 325 AD, Constantine comes along and he just establishes as church doctrine what was brought in by Simon Magus. I guess what I'm trying to say to make this simple for you to understand, these are very, very complex things we're talking about this morning and can be very confusing without about 10 hours of teaching. If you don't have the foundational teachings of what I'm talking about, you're probably lost this morning. But what I'm trying to help you understand very basically is that Balaam, Nicolaitans, Simon Pator, Simon Magus, amen, are all one in the same system. And it's in the world today. Okay? Wow. Now let me just tell you a little bit about what this church was facing. Because we had this Babylonian cult there, in the midst of them, they were fighting a counterfeit Christianity. And what was going on here is this. In this Babylonian cult, in order to become a part of that religious system, you had to confess to a priest. So confession to a priest, sound familiar? Would make you a part of, not God's church, but a part of the Babylonian system. Not only that, but they... In the place of regeneration or the new birth, they replaced it with ceremony, with ritual. Praise God. Confession to a priest to become a part of the system, and then ritual instead of regeneration, or religion instead of regeneration. They brought in the doctrine of the Trinity instead of the oneness of God. The Bible teaches us one God. They brought in the doctrine of the Trinity. They took pagan temples and they made them into so-called churches. And the idols that they worshipped in this Babylonian system, all those idols that were there, they called them by the name of saints. They were Greek mythological gods. They had a lined up all over their walls. But they simply just changed the name of those Greek mythological gods 
to the name of saints and people went and prayed to saints but really what they're doing was praying to pagan deities or false deities are you with me here it was so such a powerful system that anybody that tried to break away from the system were afraid because they believed as you study this you'll find this to be true they believed that the pope had the keys to the kingdom of heaven and earth and so if you left that system of religion then you would feel like that you were going to hell because remember the pope he's got the keys to the kingdom of heaven and earth and if you get out of his system there's no way you can be saved so it's very difficult for people to come out of that babylonian religious system uh, that they called the church later in history because they felt like to do that meant automatically they were going to hell and that's why it's such a struggle for so many people to come out of catholicism now i know i'm on video and i know i'm on tape but i'm not holding punches today i'm telling you the truth that's why it's so hard for people to break away from that. Because they believe to do so means they're going straight to hell. What they fail to understand is to stay a part of that means certain death. But if you think, if you've been raised all your life, that if you leave this system of religion, you're going to go to hell. It, you can imagine the fear that gets a hold of people. When you start talking to them and telling these things about Catholicism, and some of you are saying, well, why are you just picking on Catholicism? We'll come to church, you know, next week and the next week, well, especially when we get into Sardis, the church of Sardis, which is the Protestant church of compromise. Because the book of Revelation deals with every, every system of religion. It deals with Catholicism here. It deals with Protestantism is uh, here in this book of Revelation too. He looks at the church, he said, your works are not complete or perfect. He said, you've come to a point, but you didn't go all the way. You came out of the Nicolaitans. You came out of Baalism. You came out of that system of religion that had mixture in it. But you didn't go all the way. So I have not found your works complete. And he says that to the Protestant church. So I'm not just picking on Catholics today. I'm preaching to the, Catholic, to the Protestant church. And not only the I'm preaching to us. Because the world can get a hold of your spirit. See, nobody wants to be looked at as some kind of radical dude. But to walk with God the way the Bible calls you to walk with God means you're going to have to separate yourself and you're not going to be accepted by people. They're going to fight you. They're going to hate you. They're going to resent you if you do so. You can't hold on to both worlds. If you do, you're going to lose both of them. And so not only did they pray to all these idols and they called them saints, but they were afraid again if they left it that they would go straight to hell because the Pope's got the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, in fact, cardinal means a hinge and the Pope is the door on the hinge. And if you're going to get in heaven, you got to go through the Pope. Are you hearing me today? I don't care if you like me calling names or not. I'm being real with you. This is truth. This is Bible. <laughs> Praise God. And also, not only that, they started sprinkling instead of baptizing people in Jesus' name. They started sprinkling for immer in the place of immersion in the titles instead of baptizing in the name of Jesus. 
Where did the baptism come from? To baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm talking about the titles. It came from Babylonianism. It came from, eventually, Constantine made it a doctrine. God is not a trinity of persons. There's only one God. And his name is Jesus. Now, hold on to just a little bit to what I'm trying to share with you here, okay? So, when we look at this, look at this. He said, I know where you live, where you dwell. It's even where Satan's seat is. This false counterfeit religious system moved to Pergamos, 133 B.C., then later moved to Rome. When it moved to Rome, there was already a man named Simon Magus or Simon Peter that was there waiting there to bring an idolatry into the church. And that church system they called the Universal Church of Catholicism opened the doors and let everybody come in. You didn't have to be converted. You didn't have to be regenerated. You didn't have to be born again of the water and the spirit. You didn't have to be baptized in Jesus' name. You didn't have to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You didn't have to believe in the oneness of God. They just opened the door to anybody. Any pagan could walk in. A witch could walk into their services called the church and be accepted. They opened the door to paganism. They opened the door to, to uh, even Judaism came in. You know, don't, you don't even have to get born again, you know. Just come on into the church. It's nothing more than a man-made religious institution that they open the doors for. Okay, are y'all with me up to this point? Now, we look at this. He, he, so he says, he says, my, I've got a, a sharp sword with two edges. This church needs it. It needs to get back to the word of God. He's to find out what the Bible says and preach the word, okay? He goes on and he says this. Now watch. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, thou holdest fast my name. And that's important because the name of Jesus means what? That he is God. When you say Jesus, you're saying you, Yeshua's salvation or God is my Savior. So in the midst, midst of this false teaching, where, where there was a doctrine of the Trinity, you know, hallelujah, three persons in the Godhead, these people are holding fast his name. They love the name of Jesus. They're holding fast his name. And his name declares to everybody that he is God. And that's where the conflict is. Is Caesar God or is Jesus God? And they're walking around holding fast his name. They're baptized in his name. They believe that what his name teaches is that Jesus is God. And so they're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He's not the second person in anything. The Bible says he has preeminence, which means he has first place. He is God come in the flesh. And the whole fastest name doesn't mean you walk around and say, I love Jesus. It means you're persecuted because you believe what you know and you know what you believe. And I told you this before, that in the early church, they believed what they knew and they knew what they believed. And because of that, they were full of joy. Never afraid. And almost always in trouble. When you walk with Jesus the Bible way. You're going to have to know what you believe. Believe what you know. 
be filled with joy and be utterly unafraid and almost always in trouble. That early church did not fit in. They were separate. They were part of the kingdom of the living God. And so now these people are saying, no, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God, not Caesar. And because of that, they were persecuted and put to death. Isn't God good? So they are, when they hold fast the name of Jesus, they are declaring his deity. Do you understand that? Do you understand how difficult that was to do in that day? It was all against you, man. The world was against you. The religious system was against you. Everybody was against you that wasn't a part of the kingdom of God. They would kill you for what you believed. In those days, you were either in, come on, you were in the world or you were in the church. And so now what they try to do is they try to bring them together. Make it socially acceptable. Make it popular to be a Christian. In the church before this, Smyrna, that was a persecuted church. They died by the millions for their faith. So now this church says, okay, come on. Instead of, you know, persecuting, uh, Constantine says, let's do this. Let's make the church the state religion. And we'll tell the church everything it's supposed to preach. And it's law that you have to preach the Trinity. It's law that you have to do it their way. Amen? You must observe the pagan holidays, but call them Christian. State law. Part of what we believe. You, are you with me here? And if you did not follow the doctrine of the state that they set up in the church under Constantine, you were branded as a heretic. Hello. But now they say, come on, let's just all join together here and let's just have one big happy family with the church, the world, just get together in the state together here, you know. Mmm, heavy stuff. But here's the problem. They were tolerant as long as you went with them. See, their tolerance was open the doors and let everybody come in. But as soon as you stood for the name of Jesus and Jesus being God and the truth of the apostles' doctrine, then, then they would persecute you and say you were intolerant. I'm talking about before the, I mean, beyond the days of great persecution. I'm talking about they still persecuted people who did not follow their system. So on one hand, they were tolerant. On the other hand, they weren't. Okay, you with me here up to this point? I pray you are because this is heavy stuff, all right? <laughs> See, you know, and you got this, this stuff that goes on today. It says, well, we shouldn't be talking about other churches. We should just love everybody. Well, we should love everybody. But you don't understand the Word of God teaches that love and truth go together. And if you don't have truth, then you don't have true biblical love. What you have is a Greek philosophical love that has crept into the church. All right? Jesus said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans because you'll hate anything that, that will hinder what you love or hurt what you love. Now watch this. Okay. Y'all getting anything out of this? He said, I know your works, where thou dwellest in, where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name. 
Thank God for the name of Jesus. We're going to keep preaching the name of Jesus. We're going to preach the name of Jesus in baptism. We're going to preach the name of Jesus that he is God come in the flesh. And have not denied my faith. You're still holding on to the apostolic teaching. The apostolic doctrine is still in your church. You haven't denied my faith. Powerful stuff. He says, even in those days we're in Antipas. And Antipas literally means to stand against all. Antipas means to stand against all. He says, you have not, watch, you have, you've held fast my name. You have not denied my faith. Even in the days we're in, uh, Antipas means against all, was my faithful martyr. Who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. They took Antipas who lived in Pergamos in that day. The Romans went to his house. They knew that Antipas was a one God believer. Don't miss that. Antipas was a one God believer. He was a Jesus name believer. He was not a part of this Babylonian system of religion. They went to Antipas' house. Antipas so walked that even the Roman soldiers respected that man. History tells you that. This man was, he was loved by the community. Did you know that? Loved by the Roman soldiers. A Christian living in the midst of the world and loved by most people. Okay, even the Roman soldiers loved Antipas. They went to his house though and they said, Antipas, you must call Caesar Lord. You must declare that Caesar is Lord. And Antipas says, I cannot do that. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And so they looked at him and they said this, Antipas, come on. They begged him. History tells you they begged him to change, to recant, because they didn't want to persecute this man. They loved him that much. They said, come on, Antipas, change. Please change. Please confess Caesar is Lord. Then you could go back and, 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 and believe in there's one God. But just say it with your mouth. That's all you got to do is just compromise just a little bit. Come on, Antipas. We don't want to kill you. He wouldn't give in to them. And they said, Antipas, this is literally true. They said, Antipas, the whole world is against you then. You're all by yourself. You're the only one. That's what they told him. The whole world is against you, Antipas. That's what his name means, against all. He stood and he, you know what he says? He looked at the Roman soldiers, and he said, if the whole world is against me, then I am against the whole world. He was willing to stand by himself. He knew what he believed. He believed what he knew. He was utterly unafraid, full of joy, and in trouble. Then I am against the whole world. If I got to stand by myself, Antipas says, I will stand by myself. I will not compromise. And I know I'm in the church time here, Pergamus, which means, you know, married to the world and compromising a high tower, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand by myself. Now think about that. That means his family was against him. His so-called friends were against him. I'm telling you, this is heavy stuff. Could you stand all by yourself? 
Or would you compromise with your family? Would you compromise with the people in the world? Would you compromise to save your hide? To be accepted and acceptable? He didn't. He said, I'm against all the world. You know what they did to Antipas? They took Antipas and they put him into, inside of a brass bull. And they heated, they put that thing in the fire. They heated that brass bull up and they literally roasted Antipas alive. Because he refused to compromise. That's pretty radical faith, isn't it? Do we have that kind of faith? Or are we always trying to appeal and appease the flesh? This man died. And the Lord Jesus looked at him and said, he was my faithful martyr. The majority is not always numerical. You with me? The majority is to stand by yourself with God. If you've got God on your side, he said, God said, he's my faithful martyr. If you've got God on your side, you have the majority. I don't care if the whole world is against you. I don't care if family's against you. I don't care what's happening to you. If God's standing with you, you are the majority. What's important is how does God look at you? And so this man was faithful to the death. Mm, demon powers, man. All around that situation, trying to destroy and stomp out that early church. But thank God for people like Antipas who stood faithful. And God's calling Pergamos to be just like him. Come on, stand up for what you believe. Be faithful to what you believe. Hold fast my name. Continue to hold fast my name. Don't deny the faith. Be like Antipas, even if it means your death. He's a faithful martyr. Come on, somebody. The Lord says, I've got a sharp two-edged sword. This is the way to get the victory over counterfeit doctrines. This is the way to get the victory over false doctrines. This is the way to get the victory over compromise. This is the way to overcome all of that. Get back in the Word. Be a Word person. So anyway, he goes on. He says in verse 4, But I have a few things against them, thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. So that takes us back to the doctrine of Balaam, which means to conquer the people, which, which is what the Greeks called Nimrod. Okay? And then he goes on. And now what did Balaam do? Historically. Balaam compromised. So we got Antipas, Antipas in contrast to Balaam. Balaam, trying to hold on to both worlds, lost both of them. Antipas held on to one, God, and died. Balaam, a false prophet with an evil king named Balak, tried to curse the people of God. And Balaam tried, he wanted to do it for money. He was a hireling. You could buy him. You could pay him money. And if you gave him enough, if the price was right, you remember it took him a while. No, God told him no. He said, no, you don't go. Curse the people. But, you know, when the money got right, he found a way. So he sold out. He sold out. He was a compromiser. And he went with Balak, the evil king. He looked over there. I can't curse the people. God's blessed him. But I'll tell you how 
they, can, they will destroy themselves. I'll tell you how to position them into a place where God can't bless them anymore. I'll show you how that they will bring a curse on themselves. I can't curse them, but they can bring it on themselves. So he looked at Balak and he said, have a big old feast, a big old celebration. And get the men of Israel to have relationship with the women of Moab. And it, and it wasn't just sexual that day. It was spiritual. Because the daughters of Moab were worshipers of Baal. They worshipped idols. And so now what happens is, through the counsel of Balaam, Balak, hmm, he causes the people of God to stumble. They start having relationships with the women of Moab. And not only that, but they get involved in their worship. These are one God people. These are the covenant redeemed people of God. And now they are worshiping Baal and committing fornication with the daughters of Moab. See, there's physical fornication, but then there's spiritual fornication. And spiritual fornication and spiritual adultery is when you walk away from the truth of God and His Word. And when you do that, you will be destroyed. Come on. devil can't touch me as long as I'm walking with God. He can be dwelling in the same city that I'm in, but if I'm walking with God, I might die physically, but you can't take my faith. But if I start compromising and playing and having spiritual fornication in my life, fornicating on the Lord, being unfaithful to the Lord Jesus spiritually, then what happens is I bring the curse of God on myself. And then he begins to fight against me. And so then the judgment of God hits the people of Israel. But remember this, the angel of the Lord and one priest named Phineas or Pincus. I mean, he struck them dead. He found one of the men with a Moabite woman in the tent. He took a sword and put it through both of them and pinned them to the earth. And God blessed that priesthood because he pinned them to the earth. So the angel of the Lord and Phineas, the way the New Testament or King James Version talks about it, Phineas. That's his name that, that, it's, that it calls him there. Fought against the compromise in the days of Balaam. And God said, you have my favor. You have my blessing. That's a radical man. I'm telling you, that's a radical man. But you see, God's trying to show you, we need the people of God to stand up like a Phineas. We need the people of God to stand up for the truth and for what is right and be radical and not compromise the truth. Are y'all getting the point here? But Balaam was a compromiser. He was a worshiper of Baal. He was over the college, literally, of the priest of Baal. Was where he was from. Okay. Are y'all up to, with me up to this point? Notice he goes on. He says this. He taught Balak to cast a stumbling block. Verse 14. Before the children of Israel. To eat things. Sacrifice unto idols. And to commit fornication. Not just physically. But spiritually. I would hate to be any preacher. This hour. That compromises. Especially if they know the truth. 
if they know about the oneness of God message and the Jesus name message and, and, and all of these things that we know are true and they're standing up and compromising and opening the doors just to be socially accepted I would hate to be that man now, I, and I stand up here and I say that, and I, I, I'll tell you what, I will say this to even my own family members who claim to be preachers, who compromise the word of the living God. So I'm not biased when it comes to this. I believe what I know, and I know what I believe, and I don't care if it's family or whoever. You start compromising with God's holy word, he'll fight against you. I don't care who you are. You want to be just, you want to have a social thing going on. It's not going to work. This is the kingdom of the living God. This is God's church. You don't teach the people of God to fornicate against God or to deny God. You don't teach them that. If you do, then you are a Balaam in this hour. And I've told you before what they say when I talk to them about things like this. They say, well, we just don't have your personality. It is not about personality. Give me an Antipas. Give me a Phineas. Give me somebody that will stand up for the truth. It's not about personality. It's about being sold out to Jesus Christ. It's about walking with him the way we're supposed to. But we live in an hour where the pressures of this age are coming upon even people in the oneness movement to compromise these truths because they see the largeness of other systems. I'm going to tell you something, friend. This man stood by himself. <clears throat> and I feel the Holy Ghost. God loves this church. He loves you. But we can't let anything get a hold of us. We can't let this lukewarm spirit get a hold of us. We can't let this half in, half out kind of stuff get a hold of us. We can't sell out. We can't sell our faith out for nothing. Position, power, our money. But there's a lot of people not willing to pay the price. But there's going to be somebody that's going to pay the price. The Lord says. Now watch. This is awesome, powerful stuff. He says, verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Yeah. That same doctrine of Balaam and Nimrod. Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. That's what Balaam's name meant. And that's what they called Nimrod. Was the conqueror of the people. And the Lord says, I hate though. Hate. Let me get this right. I want to get the word right. He says, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. He hates that doctrine. I said, God hates that doctrine. Now, you would be very wise to hate what God hates and to love what God loves. And you would be very foolish to love what God hates and to hate what God loves. He hates doc some doctrines that come from pulpits. They are nothing more than pulpiteers. In fact, as we go through the book of Revelation, you're going to see that God literally called the Tower of Babel. Literally, the, you know, the Tower of Babel literally means a pulpit. 
So the Tower of Babel is not just some ancient historical thing. It's a pulpit. It's a message that, that comes from pulpiteers who stand behind pulpits and won't tell the people the truth. God said, I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to show it to you in the book of Revelation. So this name Pergamos means high tower. High tower in connection with Babylon in the book of Revelation, we will see, means a pulpit. So it is a message that people preach today. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Lord, help this church. He loves y'all so much that even if you start to move the wrong direction, God stands up in the house and he starts wanting to sound the trumpet in Zion. And God is happy with people who are sold out for him. He's happy with people that are not accepted by the establishment. But you see, the fear is, if I'm not a part of the establishment, I might go to hell. God commends those people for not being a part of it. Are you getting the point here? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Watch. He goes on and he says, verse 16, repent. Repent. Or else I will come unto thee quickly. And the word come there is connected with his parousia. And the parousia is his second coming. And his second coming is the rapture of the church. And his second coming is post-tribulational. And I think we've already proved that. But the word here that he uses, repent or I will come unto thee quickly, is erkomai. And we talked about erkomai. That's also... When you talk about Urkomai, Perusia, Epiphania, the brightness of, or the radiance of God in His coming, whatever word is used there in association with His coming, it's connected with His second coming. Okay? There can be a manifestation of Jesus today. There can be an epiphany of Jesus in us before he, there is an epiphany of Jesus for us. Are you understanding? The Lord wants to appear in you before He appears for you. So in a sense, there is the coming of the Lord today. If he don't show up here today, we're wasting our time. And there has to be an appearing of Jesus in you today. If there's no appearing of Jesus in you today, then you wasted your time. So before he comes for us, he comes in us. But when I'm talking about ultimates here in the book of Revelation, in this context of teaching, when, I use the, when the word erkomai is used... It, it, it mean, it's a verb. It means to come from one place to the other. And it's connected with his second coming to the earth. I want you to notice something very powerful. This church of Pergamos was in the first century or second century. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And it, it, it existed for many hundreds of years after this book, after this writing was given to it. Historically, there was a church of Pergamos that historically faced all these things. But the Lord says, I'm going to come to you. And the word is erkomai, and it's connected with his second coming, which means the message to this church is not just historical. It's to a church that's going to be alive in the last days. The message is to a church that is going to see him come and split the clouds of glory. This warning is not just to a past historical church. This warning is to you. And it is to me. Because it's connected to his erkomai, his coming. Literally, his physical coming back. See, people read these church things that are just history. No, no, no. The words that are used here 
are not just history. They're present day. He which was, which is, and which is to come. There is a was and is and is to come aspect to the book of Revelation. So this message is for us. He said, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't want God fighting against me. Mm -mm. He said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. All right, now, are you ready for this? If you overcome, he will give you hidden manna. God supplied manna when? In the wilderness. Historically, this church then fits over the wilderness time. Ephesus was the paradise in the book of Genesis time. Smyrna was what time? The patriarch time. And now in history, this church represents the wilderness time because you've got Balaam and you've got Balak. You've got the wilderness. You've got manna. So God's taking you back to the Old Testament. Okay, he's showing you this, the link here the, with this church. And manna is what God provided to his people in the wilderness supernaturally. And so what he's telling a church who will be in the last days, who will go through the tribulation period, who will come under attack by false doctrine and false religious systems and persecution that will come. He says, remember this. I know the Antichrist says you can't buy or sell without the mark. But remember this. I took care of my people in the wilderness. And if I took care of them in the wilderness then, I can take care of you in the wilderness now. And if you understand what a wilderness means in the Bible, it's where demons abode. It's the abode of demons. So he don't, God doesn't care if the devil's sitting right in your city. It doesn't matter if you're in the wilderness, a howling wilderness. God can send manna to you and provide for you supernaturally. You don't have to take the mark of the beast. Now, some of you, if you're still thinking you're pre-trib, well, if you're not and you find yourself in the seven-year tribulation period, maybe you'll come back and really get a hold of this message. Because you're going to find out how much you need it. Because this promise is to those that overcome. He said, I'll give you the hidden manna, which means it don't perish. It's everlasting. See, let me explain to you. In the wilderness, when the manna came down, they went out and, and got it, and they had a one-day supply. And after the one day, uh, after they got that supply, it perished. So they had to go back the next day and get some more manna. And it perished after that. And the next day, they had to go back and get it. And on the sixth day, they got twice as much. One, enough for the sixth and the seventh day. But it always perished. So you got to keep going back and getting the word. You can't live on last month's word. You got to get a fresh word. Now, having said that, my point is this. Is that the manna that they gathered perished. With one exception. They took manna up and they put it in a golden pot. And they took that manna in the golden pot. And they put it in the Ark of the Covenant, the throne room of God. And that manna never perished. The other perished, but that did not perish. It was everlasting supply, supernatural supply from God.
And he said, if you overcome, he said, I'll give you the hidden manna. Now, in Numbers 11, I don't have time to turn there, but Numbers 11, it talks about when the manna came down, it looked like coriander seed. And seed in the Bible is sperma. Now listen to me. It's that which just causes reproduction. Whether it's in the plant kingdom, animal kingdom, a human family, doesn't matter. The seed is what brings the reproduction. And when they saw the manna, they said, look at that. That's coriander seed. Or that's pure seed. And so they gathered it up. And when they ate it, it gave them life. And it's connected with his first coming to die for us as the bread from heaven. And then his resurrection from the dead. He offers you resurrection life connected to the finished work of the cross. He is the true seed of God. That gives you life, sustaining life, everlasting life that will not perish. This passing, fading world is going to perish someday. But those who overcome, he will give you hidden manna. He will sustain you even in a wilderness. It's supernatural. He is the manna from heaven. Now watch this. This is important. I may go a little bit longer than I, I have been, but I've got to get this message to you this morning. But let's go to Psalm 78. Watch what he says in Psalm 78. Notice the connection to manna. See, I haven't even got really the foundation laid on this. So I'm going to do my best. Y'all just hang with me, okay? Psalm 78. And we're going to look at verse 22. He says this, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. Though he had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven. And had rained down manna. Which means, who is it? Literally means, who is it? He rained down manna upon them to eat. And, and, of course, Jesus said in John 6 that he is the true bread from heaven. And had given them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. Right there in the wilderness. And if you back up to verse 19. He says, yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And God furnished a table in the wilderness and supernaturally gave them life-sustaining food. They could not produce it and provide it for themselves. Nor can you in the tribulation period when you have to have a mark to buy and sell. You're going to have to trust God to supernaturally supply you life-sustaining food. Because it's connected with his orkomai, his coming. And that's post-tribulational. Are you getting this? I'm not just teaching you a Sunday school lesson. You need to get a hold of this. This is very important for this hour. Now notice in Psalm 78, it's connected with their unbelief. They were walking in unbelief. God said, look, I supplied for you. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, he's talking to Pergamos. 
He's trying to help them. Don't compromise. Don't walk in unbelief. Don't walk in fleshly lust. Don't walk in fornication. He said, look, I can supply manna for you in the wilderness. But the promise is only to the overcomer. Which means it's not going to come to everybody. And the manna is called seed. Now listen to me. Are y'all with me up to this point? What God is showing you here is this. Is that in the last days there is going to be a people of the word. A people who are submitted to the word. A people who are carriers of the word. If you are a carrier of the seed, if you're a carrier of the word, you will receive the promise. But it's only to those who are carriers of the seed that receive the promise. You're going to have to be carriers of the word. You're going to have to be people of the word. You're going to have to be people who are submitted to the word. You're going to have to be people who say, I'm going to do what God says no matter what. That's the way you can overcome Balaam's and Nicolaitan doctrine. You're carriers of the word. You're submitted to the word. Now listen to me. There's a difference between submission and obedience. Okay? A lot of times we obey because, you know, we feel like we have to obey. Okay, example. If the Lord comes up and says, sit down, and you sit down, then you obey. Okay? You obeyed. But that doesn't mean you're submitted. Because submission and obedience are not the same thing. See, obedience is when the Lord tells you to sit down, you sit down. But submission is, your spirit says, yes, I sit down. That's submission. I submit to that word. Obedience without submission is like this. I obeyed. I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's the difference. I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And that is not submission. That's obedience. See, there's a lot of people that they'll, they'll obey, but they're sitting down on the outside and standing up on the inside. I'll obey you, but I ain't going to submit to you. I'll do what you tell me, but I'm not going to like it. And so they're not walking in submission. I'll do it because I have to, but I don't want to. Then you're not walking in submission. Ooh, that's heavy, isn't it? And so these people, they're overcomers. They are going to be given the hidden manna. The one that's hidden in the Ark of the Covenant. Third, third room dimension. Third room dimension. Are you getting the point here? Kingdom reign. Not just salvation, but kingdom authority with God. Going to give you hidden manna. Because it's a people who have allowed the one with the sword with two edges to come. And take out of them everything that hinders his appearing. 
And so the book of Revelation, again, is not so much what God's going to add to the church as as to what God has to take away from the church in order for him to appear in us. So he comes and takes the old Adam. He takes the flesh out of us. He takes the sin out of us. He takes the devil out of us. And sometimes he sends you through a howling wilderness. To where you've got to feed on the lamb who brought you out of Egypt. So he's showing them, remember in the wilderness, the manna came because of the lamb. The water came because of the lamb. Their shoes didn't wear out because of the lamb. All those stopping places that they went through in the wilderness were teaching points. To teach them what they had received with the lamb. And so God will let you go through a wilderness to teach you this is what the Lamb provided. This is what the finished work provided. This is what Calvary provided for you. To teach you the finished work. Why? Because He wants you to get in the most holy place. All of these promises He gives are most holy place promises. He's telling them, come on, get out of the outer court. Get out of just the most holy place. Get in the most holy place. But you've got to overcome False doctrines, the abode of demons, all kinds of things, Balaam's and Nicholas, to get there. That's why it's only those that are the overcomer, and they are the carriers of the seed. Now, I'm going to prove it to you. Are you still awake? He can furnish a table for us in the presence of our enemies. He can furnish a table in the wilderness. Okay, now listen to me very carefully. He goes on and he says this right here. He says, um, okay, verse 7, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone. Now listen to me. I don't have time to teach you the eunuch, okay? But when we talk about the stone here, it means a lot of different things. To the Romans, it meant acceptance into a feast after victory. Okay, so when, when, he's, when God says he's going to give you a white stone, that means he's going to give you a stone after your victory. It is connected with a person passing through phases of life. And at some point in their life, as they've passed through different phases, then they receive a stone because they've overcome and they're victorious. Now they have access into a feast. For us, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. For us, it's called the bridal chamber. For us, it's called the most holy place. But you've got to go through seasons and phases of growth and maturity before he will give you a white stone which gives you access into the feast. And that's the way the Romans would understand this. Okay? Hello, somebody. But also, it's connected to the Urim Thummim in the Old Testament. And we've taught you the Urim and Thummim. I don't have time to do all this again. But the Urim and Thummim is the way they determine the will and purpose of God in His kingdom in that day. And it was supernatural. So these people are people who are feeding on the Word, submitted to the Word, carriers of the Word, directed by the will and purpose of God and His kingdom, not their own. And these people who've gone through phases and phases and phases and phases have now got the victory and to them is given a stone of entrance into a feast. Are you getting the point here? But most importantly, the word stone here is connected to what produces seed. 
It is what produces or carries the seed. So these people that he gives the hidden manna to, seed, coriander seed, are overcomers who have a white stone. These people are submitted to the word. They walk by the word. They live by the word. Come on, somebody. But they carry the seed. Which takes me to Matthew 13. Seven churches in Revelation. Seven parables. Kingdom parables in Matthew 13. The third parable of Matthew 13 lays over on this third church. Praise God. See, you, you people don't understand why you know, I'm very excited. And there's stuff that's going on you wouldn't even know about. There's stuff going on in the spirit you wouldn't even know about. And, and if you were to look at you and think, well, that's not good. To me, I look at it and I say, that's real good. Because what God is doing, he's an, uncovering and exposing some spirits that are in some people. Even in leadership. And to me, that's a good thing. Because if God's kingdom is going to be established, it's going to be established on his word. God have mercy. Now watch, you're going you're to see what I'm talking about. Go to Matthew 13, this third parable. Sister, where were we? Where are we? Right now? I should have been finished two minutes ago. I got five minutes. I'm going to try to finish in five minutes. No, I don't know if I can do that. Look at this third parable. It lays over on the third church of Pergamos. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a grain of mustard seed. Which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. This parable then is a picture of the church of Pergamos. What we have here is a mustard seed that's been planted. We have a freak of nature because we have a very small herb that has become a tree. And when you talk about trees in this context, go to Daniel chapter 4 and you'll see an earthly system called Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was king over and it was likened to a tree. So it speaks of an earthly system, but he says it's the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a tree. So it's not just the true church that we see here, but we see also professing Christianity as a whole in these parables. And he said professing Christianity as a whole is like a tree. It's a freak because it's supposed to be an herb, but it has grown into a tree. And in the tree, there's all kinds of fowl. Now, for me to understand who the fowl are, I've got to go back to the first part of Matthew 13 and understand the fowls are the demons, are the agents of the devil who come and take the what? The seed or the word of God from you. So the, these fowls are then interpreted for us to be the agents of Satan in the tree. And the tree's a freak. And they're all lodged in this tree. So you have large external growth. You have a large... Now listen, you don't want to be here if you don't want to get into the Word of God. If you come here for a social thing, you don't want to be here. I'm just going to tell you right now. If you want the Word of God, you want to move a God in your life, this is where you want to be. But if you don't want to come here and just play games, you don't want to be in this church. Because this is very, very serious heavy. Now, I love you, and I'm not, that's going to change. That's not going to change the fact that I love you. But I, you know what? You don't want to be here. Unless you really want this, what I'm talking about here today. This is heavy stuff. It's real. It's only for those who are overcoming. 
It's not for people who want the world. It's not for people who want out of court relationship. It's not for people, you know, every once in a while visit with Jesus. It's not for people who just want the anointing. This is for people who want intimacy. I'm trying to show a church how to get into intimacy. Not just, you know, court him in the outer court. Or not just be anointed in the power of Pentecost, the holy place. I'm trying to show you how to get in the third room, the place of intimacy. But it's only to the overcomers who are not occupied and preoccupied and compromising with this world. I'm just telling you, I'm not preaching this to everybody. This is not for everybody. Because everybody doesn't want this type of relationship. It costs too much. The price is too great. Hello, somebody. Notice, there's large external growth, but they're all demons sitting in the, in the house. Demons in the tree. Cardinals, if you will. All kinds of religious freaks in trees, but they're earthly systems is what they are. Are you getting the point? Give God some praise. And what you see in this tree, you see the face of the whore. It is the harlot who fornicated with God. The harlot turned its back on God and compromised. She's seen in Revelation 17. You see her face in Revelation 17. You see her in this tree. Okay? Y'all got the point? And it's linked with Babylon. Large external growth. But it's a freak. God's not in it. It's full of demons. It's a house full of demons. It's full of prostitution. It's full of harlotries. It's full of people who are not intimate with their bridegroom. It's full of people who sold what was the most valuable thing that they had. For what? To feel good. A woman who's a harlot is somebody who sells what is the most valuable thing to her. For self-gratification. To feel good. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God's trying to show you the two, man. Be an overcomer. Don't be like Pergamos. Compromising. Being like that. Don't be like this, this uh, kingdom parable people right here, man. Got this tree, this earthly system, large external growth, all kinds of fowls in it, and part of trees involved in it. Don't be a part of it. you got to overcome. Be intimate with me. I will give you hidden manna. I'll give you my seed. I'll give you a white stone. You will become the carrier of my seed. You will reproduce me in the earth. You will be pregnant with Jesus. You will walk in this earth. And you will reproduce Jesus in this earth. Because you are sons of the kingdom. And sons reproduce their daddy. Sons have the nature of their daddy. You either have the nature of your daddy. You carry his seed in you today. And you're pregnant with him today. Manifesting him in this earth. Or you're carrying the seed of the serpent in you. And you can be sitting in church and still be a part of Pergamos. It's only to the overcomers that these promises are given. You see a woman heavy with child going out into the wilderness. Only a church who's pregnant with Jesus can go out into the wilderness and understand by those stopping points what he did for them. Only people like that will ever experience what Revelation 12 speaks of a woman clothed with a sun, the moon under her feet, pregnant with child. That's the church of the living God. 
Not everybody's going to have that seed, Brother Mike. Not everybody's going to have that stone. They're not going to be carriers of it. Because they are too preoccupied with self. The old Adam has dominated and controlled them. The Antichrist that's within them is overpowering Jesus. So Jesus is coming. He says, I got to get rid of Balaam. I got to get rid of Nicolaitans. I got to get rid of Nimrod. I got to get rid of the Antichrist. I got to get rid of the last Adam or the first Adam so that the last Adam, the new Adam, can, can be seen. I got to get rid of an old creation so a new creation can be seen. I've got to decreate something so that a new creation can be manifest. I've got to have a people who will walk with my word, be carriers of the word, submit to my word, live their life by the word, and manifest me in this world, even in the wilderness. But they'll get to a place of intimacy, the most holy place, and be pregnant with Jesus. Now, go over there and read Revelation 12 sometime, and you'll see the connection with the wilderness. Okay? Are you all with me at this point? Now, isn't it interesting that this third parable here is linked to a tree, a freak with fowls in it? If you go to the book of Genesis, we have seven days of creation. I'm going to try to bring this to a close. The third day of creation lays over on the third parable, kingdom parable, and it also lays upon the third church. Third day of creation, what does God do on the third day? Watch. He says this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9. Uh, let me see. Yeah. On the third day, here we go. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering together of the waters called he seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. Reproduction. He's calling for a reproduction. He's calling for a reproduction of his garden. I'm looking at the garden temple of God Almighty. Do you understand that? Let me get this. Somebody here. telling you you would not believe all the technical difficulty we have had today before this service and during this service but you know what ain't nothing gonna stop me so what you have then in this in this passage you have on the third day and the number three is the day of it's, it's the day of resurrection Three, he rose on the third day. He wants you to get in the third room. He wants you to get in the most holy place. But you've got to overcome. Give me some, give me some mic. Are you all with me at this point? Now, the land is what, why did God create the land? So he could fill it with his seed. So that he could have a garden. And you're the garden, you are his husbandry. You are his garden temple. You are supposed to be producing all kinds of beautiful fruit in your life. Not works of the flesh, but beautiful fruit in your life. That eventually, 
All this nevertheless stuff that's inside of us, he's going to take it out of the way. So that by the end of the book of Revelation, you've got a beautiful garden. You've got a river coming from the throne room, and you've got trees on either side, a beautiful garden, and you are that garden in case you don't know it. But God's got to get the nevertheless stuff out of us. He's got to get the antichrist out of us, and false doctrine out of us, and false priesthood out of us, and all that stuff that's not of him. He's got to get it out of us so that his seed can be seen in us, and it is Jesus I'm talking about here. He is the eunuch who had no generation. But when he died, was buried, and rose again. I am now looking at his generation. I am now looking at his seed. I am looking at his garden temple today. And it's the planting of the Lord. But the reason why God allows the howling wilderness is to remove all the counterfeit garden. To remove the mustard tree. To decreate an old creation so that his new creation garden can be seen. That's why you got to overcome all this stuff to be a part of it. Because he's going to go in there like a consuming fire. And he's going to burn up everything. The Bible said in the book of Ezekiel, it looks like a howling wilderness behind. And in front, the garden of Eden. Because God's getting rid of all the howling, he's getting rid of all the stuff. This counterfeit gardens. So that there can be the true garden of God's seen. Now this ain't first grade teaching here. This is, this is the word of God. All right. Now, and it, what, how was it created? By his death, burial, and resurrection. He's the eunuch without seed. By his death, burial, and resurrection, though now, and by the new birth, you have been born unto God, and you are the sons of God. So that in Matthew 13, the kingdom parable there, that I read the third one there, is linked to what? A garden. But it's a counterfeit garden. Genesis chapter 2, the third day, is connected with a garden and seed and reproduction. That's old creation. When Adam fell, the old creation was affected. So Jesus came in to bring in a new creation. He is a new man. I'm looking at a new people. I'm looking at a new garden. I'm looking at a new temple filled with a new spirit who have a new name, who speaks with new tongues. God is trying to restore paradise. But he's got to get rid of the old paradise before he can. And the paradise he's restored is a people. Now watch. Is everybody okay out there? Are you sitting down on the inside, standing up on the outside? Sitting down on the outside, standing up on the inside? I love you guys. Y'all are awesome. Isn't God good? So do you see what God's trying to do in the book of Revelation? He's trying to decreate. He's trying to remove stuff so that the truth can be seen. And that's why he gives these promises to churches who overcome. And they're connected to his seed, to his garden, to his reproduction, to his manifestation, to his coming. Do you understand? If you do, say praise the Lord. Give God a hand clap of praise. Go to Matthew 13. I'm going to close with this. Appreciate your patience. I pray we just haven't been all over the world here. Uh, been trying to help you. That's why I'm telling you that there's no way we can hit all of this in one service. But 
We're doing our best, okay, to give you the information you need to grow and, and reproduce and become what God wants you to be. But in chapter 13, we remember the parable of the sower? He went forth to sow the seed, right? The word seed there is literally sperma. The sower is God. He literally goes forth to sow his seed or his sperma in a people so that there would be a manifestation of himself in his people, in his garden. Do you see this? It's interesting to me that you go from the seed, which is called the Word of God, in Matthew 13, the first parable. The second parable, which we talked about last week, okay, the good and the bad seed, the wheat and the tares. Now that seed, which was the Word, now has become the sons of the kingdom. So that the seed has produced sons because the seed there, the good seed and the bad seed, became people, remember? Sons of the kingdom and sons of Satan. Okay. So what we have then is when God gives you a promise of giving you hidden manna, He's going to give you His seed. And then you become, and also a white stone, you become carriers of that seed. You are to reproduce Him in the earth. Okay? And these people are people who, of the Word who have become sons of the kingdom. They're also called the seed of the kingdom. They're called good seed. So you go from the word to what it produces. You and me. And as long as you keep being a people of the word, you're going to overcome all these false things that try to come up and destroy you and defeat you. You're going to be carriers of the seed. You're going to reproduce Jesus in the earth. You will be the garden of God. He will take you in the, in the care of you in the howling wilderness. He will furnish a table for you in his wilderness. He will take a howling wilderness and turn it into a paradise of God. He'll take a situation where demon powers are coming against you and defeat every one of them right in the middle. But you have to be that people of the seed who overcome and walk with God and carry that word. And that's why he says to this church, I've got a sharp two-edged sword. That's his word. That's how you're going to overcome is by being people of the word. Submitted to the word, saying yes to whatever God wants you to do, and walking as a kingdom son, rightly related to the word. When you go in history, as I said, it's related to the wilderness, okay? As far as the seven epistles of Paul and how they lay over on this seven, seven churches here, this particular church, it could be a, a number of any of the epistles that Paul wrote concerning and dealing with false doctrine and apostasy. It could even be uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That could I don't know, okay? All I know is there's seven epistles of Paul, and they lay over on the seven church epistles to John. Because what you have is what John saw, Paul saw. And what Paul saw, John saw. And he saw a finished work that leads to the most holy place. And he saw beautiful people who had become the garden of God, who had overcome all the stuff and obstacles and false doctrines that were around them, even the demons that were around them. They survived. They overcame. So Paul saw the finished work. John saw the finished work. Got it? Last thing I'm going to tell you. It takes both. Okay? It takes Paul and John. It takes the practical man. And it takes the prophetic man. You have to have both. You have to have a Haggai who God calls to build the temple garden of God. 
after they come out of captivity of Babylon. You have to have a Haggai, a practical man, involved in the building of that temple. You have to have a mystic. You have to have a prophet, a Zechariah. And both of them preached at the same time, the practical man and the prophetic man. Both of them were prophets, one prophetic and one spirit. Haggai, he don't have a bunch of visions. Zechariah has visions. Haggai just deals with practical things. Zechariah comes along and he says, I had a vision here. I saw these horses and the myrtle trees and all these things going on. And they're both connected with the rebuilding of the temple of God. And God's re he's building a temple this day, and you're part of it. And it takes both. It takes a Paul, who's the practical, and it takes a John, who's a prophetical, to preach to you the finished work of the cross. Because if you ever get a hold of that message, you will become the beautiful garden of God in this earth. And it's always been God's desire that he have a temple garden in this earth to manifest what's in the heavens here. But not it, this ain't everybody's, this is not for everybody. This is not for everybody. They're too, too busy building heaven on earth. They're too busy trying to make their own paradises here. Instead of walking in the paradise and kingdom of God and being involved in building his temple and being a part of that and being carriers of the seed. Lord, help us. Does this help anybody here today? You can turn the cameras off and the tape. You have much to overcome. 